Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. This is COVID pandemic recording, so you may hear the odd weird noise like crows or my neighbor's kids or a lot of times my guest's kids and sometimes this little schnauzer that's next to me, Minette. And it's an exercise in acceptance. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. Despite initiatives like adding A for arts to STEM initiatives so that it is STEAM, the arts are still a real second-class citizen in education in the United States today. They are considered to be a waste of time by many adults, and the schools themselves They're not testable, not that they should be, that's actually the wrong way to go, but they are often the first things, in fact, they are usually the first things that are cut when there's any question about budget. It mystifies me all the time the way that we expect very young human beings to tolerate what's effectively a workplace that we would hate, that we would not tolerate. Things that adults find unbearable in the workplace include bullying, a word I don't love. I'd actually rather just replace it with harassment because I think bullying has this kind of, I don't know, there's a cute aspect to it that feels very much like a Christmas story or sort of a, in my head, I see it as something out of our gang, the 1920s little comedies with kids. It's intimidation. It's harassment. Sometimes it's assault. Those are all more serious. And we have a complete through line from what we find ourselves subjected to in childhood, all the way through to adulthood, many, many, many adults are harassed, verbally assaulted, certainly, and mismanaged in the workplace. We often refer to school as a child's workplace. That's not an accident. It was designed to be that way. It's interesting to take a step back out of our own experiences and, and more importantly, Take a step back out of what we've chosen for our family because a lot of us get very, very defensive. I know it. I understand it's very natural. I've felt both ways. Defensive about having my kids in school, defensive about homeschooling, defensive about them being in school again. It's That is emotional baggage. I'm not even going to carry it. We're just going to leave it. In fact, let's leave that as unattended baggage, put in an anonymous call and have airplane security blow it up. That's baggage we don't need. If we take a step away and look at the structure of a school day, it's intentionally meant to guide children. And when you think for a minute, it doesn't feel like this when you have one. But once your kids are older, a five-year-old is 
a very tiny child. And of course, many children are in school much earlier than that. But a five-year-old is, you know, half a decade old. That's for adults, that's the blink of an eye. It's a very tiny child put into a system that is meant to mimic in very significant and deliberate ways factory life. If you contrast it to what schools or kids' lives or learning was like before the invention of factory schools, it's quite, quite different. In those schools, sure, you would wake up for a certain time, but you wouldn't have bells to go thing to thing to thing. They worked a little bit more. If, if you were in a school pre-factory schools, pre, pre the kind of system we have now, which was developed in the mid-1800s, the schools you were at, a lot of them were called dame schools, and that would be a woman of education, but not wealth, generally. For, and I'm talking elementary age, who would teach a group of kids how to read and write and do some sums. It was generally in her house. Wealthy people would go to dame schools first, actually, and then perhaps to boarding schools, but even those aren't necessarily that old. And those are much more like tutoring. You, might, you would have classes and, and you would take them with other kids but the regimented day that happens in a school, that's not that old. We still have people who can't get over the Civil War, and this is the same age as the Civil War. So very deliberately, if you look at the literature that the people, uh, Thomas Dewey, I think his name is Thomas, was the early popularizer of public schools in this system. His system won out in the 1800s. But if you look at his writings, if you look at contemporaries, this is peak industrial revolution in the United States. And you wanted to have an educated populace. Some of these impulses are generous. Education, good citizenship, some of them are generous. Some of them are paternalistic. Some of them are to, to try to make people a certain way, to, to dampen their home cultures, whether those were immigrant cultures, which many times they were, or even if they were sort of incomer cultures from the countryside, the idea was that they needed to be taught the ways of modern society. And I always love this. It's, it's actually something I... I really, it's, I find it delicious. Everybody in history is the cutting edge of modern when they're alive. Pretty much. Very few exceptions. They, they consider them, I mean, they have to be. They're, they're the current state of modernism. The reason I give their exceptions is because sometimes you have people who really are backwards looking and, and want traditionalism at the time that they are, which is, of course, even older. But so... So these are modernists. These are people who are trying to make future society. And they know quite rightly that control over children's lives and their development is an investment 
on the good side. In the future, it's also a power on the could-be-bad side. So the upshot is an institution is developed for the education of children. It is made to prepare them for factory life. In factory life, you do a task and you are checked for quality and you change tasks. You go to breaks. You go to lunch based on a whistle or a bell. And I think that's one of the biggest holdovers from these original ideas. I mean, there's plenty of embedded ideas, but that's sort of the most obvious holdover from the school day as factory preparation. I'll tell you, I never had the slightest thought about these facts, these, this reality, until my oldest child decided to go into second grade. All my kids were given the option at seven to decide their own education. This is how I set up the system. I looked at Germany, which begins serious schooling education at the age of seven. Traditionally, seven is considered a watershed mark because it, for most kids, it really is a developmental milestone. Kindergarten was never meant to be a, an academic pursuit. If you look at the original concepts of kindergarten, and the ages five and six were actually kind of gray for the time. It was very much meant to be hands-on. In fact, the kindergarten movement goes back to what I originally started talking about. It was all artistic. You can find online for quite shocking amounts of money replicas or originals of the original kindergarten kit, the kindergarten box. And it was much more like my experience of Montessori has been, or maybe my experience of uh, Suzuki. The teacher was very attentive, involved, present, and would introduce one thing a week. And usually these were this wooden set of shapes. Well, it was these wooden set of shapes. So you would introduce the ball and then the children would draw it and they would play with it. And there would be this whole tactile aspect, again, like Montessori, to this set of things, set of physical things in your hands. And then the following week you might, or maybe at mastery, I'm not sure which, you would get another shape. And there's very interesting evidence about the cutting edge modern art movement architects of the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s being the products of these first kindergartens because they had learned this very disciplined structure of, of shape to shape to shape. And while it was very disciplined, it was also based on exploration and tactile exploration and art and art. So my decision for my kids was, you know, much like the Jesuits say, give me a child until the age of seven. My feeling was that 
Zero to seven was early learning, unstructured learning, a lot of art. I never went quite so strict as the Germans in their kindergartens. But I did let my kids decide at second grade. I was called to a parent-teacher meeting day two of my oldest child's first, second day in school. And the reason was because she hadn't handed in her paper wordlessly. Everyone was doing a, a, either a quiz or a, an exercise of some sort. And the bell rang. And all the children sat up and handed their papers in, except mine. Mine held on to her paper, and as the teacher came around, she said, Oh, didn't you want me to finish it? And I was told that my child was insubordinate. That is factory schooling. And very unsatisfactory. After my chat with my guests, I'll come back and talk some more about school and art and the importance of art. Next up, part two of my conversation with art professor Cheryl Adams. And then what we miss, I think, as teachers in school is that aha moment where, like, I don't know, just a few weeks ago, my youngest, out of the blue, like, kind of randomly went, oh, my gosh, I totally get it. The number on the bottom of the fraction is how many parts the whole is divided into. I'm like, yes, exactly. He's like, I know you've told me that, like, 50 times, but it's just not, I get it now. Oh, wow, mom, I get it now. And so... Instead of like driving home for all these years, like, well, why don't you get it? It's like he had his own sort of enlightened, again, the luxury of time, right? You know, he would be in fifth grade. And if by fifth grade, he really truly didn't understand that the denominator was, you know, the number that the whole is divided into, he would probably not be doing very well in math. But how many kids really do go through their educational timeline and learning math that they truly don't understand that the denominator, that bottom number is what the whole is divided into. And I think that it's probably more kids, kids don't want to admit when they don't know things because we put so much pressure on them to know all the time. And if you don't know, well, it's your fault. You haven't worked hard enough. Well, and that's true. And and it's funny because I was just listening to somebody talk about the value of failure, which I totally believe. But there's a footnote to that. And that is, you can only learn from failure if you're given a chance to learn from failure, if it's not punitive in some way, if you're not punished or sort of conditioned to punish yourself, because you're not going to learn anything when you're in that shame space at all. You're just going to sit down there and feel worse and worse and worse about yourself. Whereas in fact, failure should be one of the steps to I will get it as time goes on. <laughs> Take the test as many times as you need. I need you to get it. Yeah, like I want, I, you know, as a teacher, like to look at kids and say, no, I want you to understand this. I, I really want you to understand it. And I care about, care about you as a student enough that I really want you to understand it. And then sometimes you'd have kids, like even my own kids, like recently we were doing one of those math concepts that's like, why are we learning this? This just seems completely not applicable to anything ever in my life. Yeah. And I'm like, 
because sometimes we have to just learn the, uh, the seemingly unapplicable thing, um, you know, and, you know, sometimes you'd have that student who was like, yeah, no, I really don't care to learn this. And you could try to convince them and I could walk them through it and try to convince them. But, you know, sometimes you kind of had to let it go and allow the natural consequence to come into play. And again, as a public school special educator, that was not a very popular, (laughs) I was not, I was not, I was, I did well with my administrators, but a lot of the co-teachers that I worked with were not on board with some of the ways that I was thinking about teaching. And were you teaching in the schools at the same time as you were homeschooling your kids? I was not. No. um, Okay. That's sequential. I left, I left the public school system when my older son was born. My daughter. Oh, that's right. Yeah. My daughter was in kindergarten and you know, the problem was I was teaching an hour and 15 minutes away and my daughter was still in half day K. So I was never getting her on the bus. I wasn't able to pick her up. Like she would have been bouncing around between, you know, kindergarten after school programming, going between two parents. It was going to be a red hot mess. And then having an infant to take him an hour and 15 minutes to put him in a daycare nearby the school it just didn't seem worth it. And that's when, you know, and staying home kind of, I mean, if I had to put a finger on when I decided to homeschool, maybe that was the choice when I decided to just stay home in general. But now you've worked while you homeschooled, correct? Yes. Yeah. So my undergraduate degree, I actually have a BFA in photography with a minor in painting from UMass Dartmouth. And when my son was 18, not even 18 months, he was under a year actually, Uh, so photography, of course, has gone through this really interesting transformation where, you know, when I was in school, I was learning film and darkroom and all that good stuff. And, but even then, like, so I graduated in 92 and Photoshop was invented in 89. So the writing was on the wall. Like my senior photographer, my senior photography professor was actually using Photoshop and doing these giant paper printouts, you know, like matrix printouts of (laughs) like, that's what she was showing at the time. So you could see that there was going to be a shift. And so I kept shooting film, you know, when I graduated, but I actually had become more interested in painting, like my painting was starting to evolve. And I was like, I'm going to put photography down for a while, because this is going to have to come into its own later. And I'm going to paint for a while. So I did, I painted for 10 years. But when my son was born, and I used to sell equipment. So digital DSLRs, the digital single lens reflex cameras were finally the same price as regular DSLRs were when I was selling equipment 15 years earlier, or you could see where the price point had started to match and the quality of the imagery had started to match. And I was like, all right, it's time I'm going to invest. So I bought a DSLR when my son was uh, about a year old. And I just started by taking pictures of him and my kids, uh-huh. which yeah. people are like, we really love your photography of your kids. Will you take pictures of my kids? And so I've now been shooting professionally for 13 years. Yeah, it's wow. been 13 years. Wow. And, you know, it, it was kind of, you know, when I was a film photographer, I was much more fine arts based. You know, I did a lot of like figurative work and stuff that you honestly because of the advent of digital, you can't really do a lot of figurative work anymore. It's a little bit frowned upon. Interesting. So the bulk of my business now is I do a lot of family photography work and I've been doing documentary family style photography for 13 years. And I have clients that I've been working with all 13 years. Wow. So it's kind of, it's a real honor to be somebody's quote unquote family photographer. And in some mm-hmm. cases, like I truly like 
you know, I started working with this one family when their son was uh, three months old. And then I photographed him at three, six, nine, one, 18 months and two. And when he turned Aww. two, they had their second child. And so then I did the same thing for the second child, then the third, and then her sister got married and I did her sister's wedding and then her sister just gave birth. So I'm going to do Aww. her newborn shoot. And so you have these very long-term relationships with families. And, you know, I always tell people and like, people are like, Oh, I must be so competitive doing photography now. Cause you know, literally anybody can do it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, I, I don't say that flip. I don't, I'm not very glib about it. Like, you know, I teach photography at RISD too. And, and I teach kids and some of my kids are really brilliant photographers. Yeah. But I keep telling people, I'm like, it's a personal business. You know, it's very personal. Like, People do not like having their photograph taken. So they have got to feel comfortable with you. Mm. And, and I always tell, especially my wedding clients, I'm like, if you don't feel comfortable with me, please, for the love of God, do not hire me. Like you've got to hire somebody that you feel comfortable with. And I've only had one person not hire me. <laughs> and I actually <laughs> told them, I was like, I was like, I think if you're not comfortable, I, I was like, I don't feel like you connect with me can I give you a list of people? And she kind of looked at me like, what? I was like, oh, really? Like, if you're not comfortable with me, I really want you to get somebody that you love. And, and she did, and which yeah. was great. And it's no, I don't take it personally ever because again, like I do understand that this, there are lots and lots of great photographers out there. There truly are. And a lot of them, you know, I consider my colleagues, but there are a lot of my colleagues that I would never have, like say one of them, I double booked or something like, yeah their personalities aren't always going to be a great fit to my clients and vice versa. Mm. So, and it's been a great, it's been great work. Like, I mean, I've also like, in addition to family stuff, like for example, I work for the public radio in Rhode Island. Now I do the photography work for this fantastic podcast called mosaic. And, you know, I've gotten to meet all these brilliant people while they're telling these amazing stories about immigration oh, cool. and, yeah, I, it's it's fantastic work. And I've done a lot of work with NGOs and education. Like I worked for the Providence After School Alliance for a while. Mm. I'd still be probably doing some work for them. They're, you know, with pandemic, it's kind of wacky. But a lot of groups similar to that in Providence. And so I've met and networked with some really incredible people, like just through being a photographer. And then my kids, and here's the great thing about being a photographer, right, is that my kids have been able to actually come along with me to some of these really cool events that I get to photograph. So I'm not sure if you've been to downtown Providence, but there are these two murals facing each other off of Matheson street. And they were done by these two Polish artists who came to Providence for 10 days and they actually happened to be huh. a couple. And one of them did one of the murals on one side of the, the parking lot. And then the woman did the mural on the other side of the parking lot. And my job was to go and document these oh, cool. murals being developed. And so every day me and the kids would go downtown and they get to hang out and watch these murals come to life. And they got to meet the artists. And I mean, they still talk about it, you know, and. So this is brilliant because you have a photography business. You're a teacher at Rhode Island School of Design, RISD. But. One of the things I haven't had many people talk about is, you know, I always ask people, how do you balance the teaching with the work? You brought your kids along yeah. for a chunk of the work. And yeah. that is a learning, like that's, that counts. Everything yeah. counts. Oh my God, right? Like, I mean, how amazing is it that 
you know, and so the that those two murals were created in the first year that Providence did their art fest, the PVD fest. Okay. And, and so, I mean, they got to experience like PVD fest, like the development of an art festival from the backside. Like they got what's, to see what's PVD. The, Providence, uh, Providence. PVD is the the airport. Ah, got it. abbreviation so people refer to providence as pvd so the art festival which usually happens in june i think they've done four now uh they, we obviously didn't have one this year but pvd fest was this big art festival the weekend-long art festival and i worked for a public arts organization called the uh, the avenue concept which they're still doing incredible work like bringing public art to the city of providence i worked for them as their in-house photographer for two years and so they played a big part in PVD Fest by putting up these two murals and they created a pop-up skate park. Cool. And so my kids got to go. I had to document the whole, you know, PVD Fest. So they get to hang out at a skate park all day long, you know, and my son was actually part of the second year. My younger son was part of the promotional material. Like he was on one of the posters with his skateboard and his mohawk and it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, no, I mean, obviously I can't bring my kids to all my work. Like when I go to do yeah. family sessions, I cannot bring my kids. There right. are certain professional ethics and etiquette that I, you know, I have to kind of uphold for credibility right. reasons. But anytime my kids could come with me, like when I was, when I was shooting for the Providence After School Alliance, if it was an actual event, like not one of their benefits, but it was an actual event that hosted kids, Oh, absolutely. My kids would go and they would be there and they'd be in the middle of it. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of work with the Providence, like B-boy and hip hop scene for a while. And God, they met, like we used to go to Everett Stage School, which again, I mean, Providence has an extraordinary, they have an extraordinary art scene on all levels. Mm. There are a lot of really extraordinary people doing extraordinary things in the city of Providence that again, I've had this great honor to meet. And the Everett Stage School is one of these terrific places. And my boys, they have this event called Open Stage on the first Friday of every month where it's literally you go in, you sign up for a five minute slot and it's kind of like an open mic, but it's not just oh. open mic, it's open dance. Anybody, oh, like you, cool. can, you go in, you sign up, it's first come, first serve. And then they have a headliner. They always actually bring somebody in to perform at the end of Open Stage. And we got there because like this is how life sort of intertwines and connects my son was playing capoeira which is a brazil afro-brazilian martial art All right and they don't do belt tests like karate they only do belt tests once a year and they usually have a big event so they were having their big event at water fire that year so i went and i was photographing my son i had just bought my newest mm -hmm. dslr and i had <laughs> and so I went to that event, I was photographing my son, and then this b-boy crew got up and they performed as part of this event. I took pictures of them and I wanted to track them down to get them their photographs because they were awesome. They were just really, they were really great. And they're like, oh, well, you should come to this event. There's this pop-up skate park in downtown Providence every other Thursday. And they have a pop-up skate park. They have a DJ. They had a boy huh. floor. They had like an open wall for graffiti. And so I was like, all right, that sounds great. Two days later, I broke my leg. <laughs> oh, so no. I hobbled down to this event two weeks later <laughs> on crutches. <laughs> and I dropped myself like on the ground of where they had the dance floor set up. And again, I just start photographing all these dancers. But through this experience, my kids, who at the time were three and five, 
well, they just started dancing. Mm. Break dancing was huge. It had become yeah. huge and it was just yeah. a really big deal. And to see it sort of make this incredible comeback, I'm sure it never went away, but for me to like start witnessing it all the time, I was like, this is amazing. So through that, one of the guys who's part of that B-Boy crew was also an MC and he was performing at open stage and was like, Cheryl, you should come to open stage. <laughs> well, then my kids start signing up for slots and dancing at five, six years old. Like there's my son just like freestyling it. He'd pick his song and he'd be like, I'm going to do this song. And he would just get up and make up whatever he was doing on the fly. Wow. And through open stage, then meeting other poets and other performers in the city. I mean, I just started doing all this really amazing photography work. Like, I'm not saying like my work was really amazing. It was the people I was photographing were just doing this extraordinary work. And, um, and it's really helped kind of connect me like throughout the city. And my kids being a part of going to see poetry performances, going to see these dance performances, you know, listening to people tell their stories through, you know, what their experiences were in education, because then they would, right. like, Everett Stage School also, they developed their own theater pieces every two years, they would basically host these things called brain cafes, and they'd bring in different people to tell their stories on this one particular, they pick a theme. And they create, they have all these performances to, over the course of two years that they draw inspiration from to write their mm. actual theater piece. So my kids would go and listen to all of these stories too. And yeah, so my work ended up kind of being this thing that they kind of tagged along with and got to, like, we were learning together about all yeah. the organizations and people. And so, yeah, it was a real, it's been a really amazing thing to, um, like, I actually, yesterday I went to photograph somebody for the podcast and I came home and I was explaining to my son who it was. And he's, he was a very famous musician in the seventies. and. My son's like, wow, you're going to be a really famous photographer then. I was like, no, <laughs> his fame does not translate to mine. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. But, you know, it, it's kind of cool for my kids to also sort of connect with the value of the work. You know, I love how integrated it is. And yeah. and actually I don't wanna I don't wanna not address the fact that so one of the here I am derailing myself. One <laughs> of the things so the, the things I hear over and over and over and over are I can't homeschool because I wasn't a teacher. I can't homeschool because I have to work. I can't homeschool because I'm not rich. I can't homeschool because I'm a single parent. So I don't want to get too far away from the fact that you've been a single parent this whole time well, homeschooling. Not the whole time because you know I was I was married my I was married to my son's father until 2 years 3 years ago. It's been 3 years. Since oh okay. My apologies. Okay, but you've been a single parent homeschooling for a chunk of time. For a chunk of time. And well so here was the scary part. You know, not to be super personal, but I think I stayed in my marriage longer than I probably should have because I didn't I'd created this really wonderful life for myself, uh, what I found to be a really like my, you know, really wonderful life for myself and my kids being able to homeschool. And I was terrified that if I, if I got my divorce, then I would have to go back to working full time. I'd have to, you know, go get the normal nine to five job. And then I'd have to send my kids to school. And not that that was the end of the world. That was not, I did not think that was the end of the world. It's yeah. just that I didn't want to have to give up 
what I had spent so long developing because you know, I mean, you know, as a homeschooling parent, it takes a while to find your people. Like I always yeah. tell people when you start homeschooling, don't stress quite so hard about the learning and the academics, because that's going to come. It's going to happen no matter what you do or don't do. Like your kid that's going to want to learn stuff and you're going to be, you, you know, you're going to go through these really flat cycles of lulls. And then all of a sudden it's like, you cannot like research harder and fast enough to, you know, give all the information that your kids want to know about whatever it is they're doing. Right. So anyway, I was really worried that I wasn't going to be able to do it. And so I logged into school spring because I was a teacher and I was like, all right, I'm going to look for my teaching job. And about five minutes into that search, reading job descriptions, I was like, I can't do this. Mm. <laughs> I just, I literally, I closed my laptop and I grabbed a notebook and I said, what is your skill set? Like, what is your skill set? You know, and I started listing. I'm like, and at the time I was working, I had started working for RISD then too. I think I was, I think I was a year into two years. I think I've been working for RISD then two years. The first year I worked for them, I only taught two summer camps. So I'd only taught for them for two weeks. Okay. Then that summer, I worked for them almost the entire summer. Like their programming runs for seven or eight weeks. And I worked all seven to eight weeks. You know, so by working the school vacation camps and working all summer, I was able to generate, you know, enough income to supplement my photography work that I felt like, okay, if I just push a little harder with my photography business, I hang on to my RISD work and I do one, maybe one other thing, like what is that other thing going to be? And Mm -hmm. again, I just, I assessed all my skills. It's like, well, I'm a homeschooling parent. I'm a teacher. I can teach kind of teach almost anything because I always tell people it's never about the content. It's about how you're able to disseminate the information. So, you know, I consider myself to be a pretty good teacher. I really enjoy working with a diverse amount, different styles of learners. And then I was a photographer and I can paint, I can do all these creative things. Well, why don't I just teach more? And instead of teaching through the institution, I was able to teach out of my house. So I added a layer, Ah. I added a layer of insurance um, you know, I already had a BCI check cause you know, I worked at RISD and then I just kind of very quickly on the fly, built a very quick WordPress website, figured out how to connect it to PayPal and started offering classes to the homeschool community. And it went pretty well. Like I did yeah. that for the entire fall into the winter. And then my family had a, we kind of, we had a tragedy sort of strike where my uncle, who was 94, he was the primary caregiver for my aunt, who was 96, and my cousin, mm. who was 50 with Down syndrome, he very suddenly had a brain hemorrhage. And oh, I, I was teaching no. at RISD, it was February, and I was at the camp, and my mother never, ever calls me at this particular time of day, and I answered the phone, and when she, like, you know, dropped the news, I was like, well, here it is. <laughs> wow. And you know, it, it was kind of a weird, like 2017 sort of start, you know, I started my divorce in 2017. And that's when I started, you know, I I figured it out. It was hard. I'm not going to lie, like doing the schooling for I'm not a very good promoter. So trying Mm. to push my photography business and push this secondary business was, it was just out of my comfort zone. But I wanted to keep my kids, I wanted to be home with my kids enough that I was able to make it work. And, you know, and then you just, you, you budget, you know, you figure out what is what you really need and what you don't and cutting more stuff out, you know, and you realize like how much of that stuff doesn't really 
make your life any better or worse anyway. So it, you know, you really kind of start to figure out like what's really important. Yeah. Yeah. So this other, you know, this other sort of tragic thing in October, my former husband moved out October 1st, exactly a week later, my mother who'd been living on her own on the South shore of Massachusetts, she had this really weird accident where she (laughs) practically poked her eye out and she was rushed to Mass Ioneer and they fixed her eye, but they couldn't repair her vision. So she could no longer drive. And technically she oh, wow. shouldn't have been driving at that point anyway. But this really meant like she was never going to drive again. And my childhood home was sort of set back off the main road. Like we're in, we were in Weymouth. So Weymouth is a really overdeveloped, you know, suburb, but right. where she was, was she was off the beaten path. And so my brother and I really had to you know, crunch and say, look, it's time. We need to sell the child at home. Like you need to come live closer. Like my brother's in Canada. So I was like, you need to come live closer to me. And so my brother and I were dealing with this major task of yeah, elder care, getting the house on the market. And my mom decided she wanted assisted living not to come live with us, which was her choice. And we made it happen. But literally the week before she was supposed to move, that's when my uncle had the brain hemorrhage. Oh, and that's, was that her brother? No, that was her brother-in-law. My oh, aunt no. was her sister. But then yeah. we're dealing with, okay, now what do we do with Mary and Susan? What do we do with these other two people who need a place to be? My aunt could not take care of herself and definitely could not take care of my cousin. But we were able to move my aunt with my mom to the assisted living, which was five minutes from my house. Oh. And then Susie came to live with me. So, but, you know, I always explain to people, I'm like, from the time I was 18, like my uncle asked, like, if something happened to us, would you take care of her? And I was like, of course I would, you know, yeah. we grew up together, you know, she was my friend. She, she's all the reason why I went to special ed because I watched, you know, my aunt and uncle fight really hard to get her basic educational needs. And my cousin, despite her down syndrome was not stupid by any stretch. She was really smart kid. She learned to read before she got into kindergarten. She was the only kid in her kindergarten who knew how to read. And, you know, she was funny. She had like the sharpest sense of humor, which she completely inherited from her dad and was really stubborn too, which she got from her mom. And so, you know, when she came to live with me, she had just turned 51. She actually just turned 51. And adults with Down syndrome, they start to develop Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, they age much more quickly. So at 40, and almost all people with Down syndrome have the genetic marker for Alzheimer's. So there's there's something in the genetic makeup of, you know, the condition of the genetic condition of Down syndrome that they do start to develop dementia and Alzheimer's early. And so for my cousin, and my uncle had been telling me this for a while, that, oh, well, she has dementia, like they diagnosed her with dementia. And I was like, really? Because I I mean, we didn't see her as frequently for a variety of reasons. What would happen is that my uncle, when he went to go look for services and other things for Susan to do outside of the home, you have to do all of that through the state. Mm. And it had been suggested at some point because, you know, my aunt gave birth to Susan when she was 46. Mm. So they were already older when she was, you know, 20, 30 years old. And it had been suggested to my uncle that she should no longer be living with them by one of the state social workers. And so he just stopped trying. He was was afraid they were going to take her away from them. Oh, no. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so 
my uncle had told me that she had dementia, but I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't see it until she came to live with us. And, you know, her, it was just, it was kind of basic stuff. Like she couldn't remember names. She started forgetting her birthday, which was like unheard of. Oh, but again, you talk about like the, you know, an amazing experience for my kids to have taken in this person who clearly needed us. Yeah. And take, not only just take care of her, but she kind of gave us this incredible gift because she was an amazing, I mean, I loved my cousin to pieces. Like she was just, she was funny. You know, she was a huge Rolling Stones fan. She was, you know, the heavier, the metal, the better. So, you know, my kids became like Stones fans. We started listening to the Beatles all the time. She loved to dance. She was, I mean, again, she had a really sharp wit and like I had to keep all of her doctors on the North shore of mass just so I could learn more about her and what I was facing. And so, but they came, we drove to Salem. We did all these like long drives to like take Susan to doctor's appointments and they would come in and they would contribute to these appointments, especially, you know, in the second, she stayed with us until she passed away this past March and my kids would come to the appointments and they would talk to the doctors about who she was, what they saw, like things that I would forget they would remember. Like, so they participated in her care in ways that we just don't think of kids having a voice. And also, I I don't know, like I started noticing too, when I was taking care of her that we still keep, like, even though it's illegal to have adults with developmental disabilities or any disabilities, it's illegal for them to be in sheltered day programs. Sheltered day programs still exist because they kind of have to. And we don't see a lot of people, adults with disabilities out in the world. Like they hit 21 and all of a sudden they make this transition into the adult programs and we just don't see them. Yeah. You know, it was funny. She was living with us for about a month. And my kids, like, one at a time came up to me like, man, we didn't really know Susan. She's awesome. I was like. That's extraordinary. Like, yeah, she is awesome. I know. Like, she's awesome. And so my kids all of a sudden became, like, these extraordinary advocates and fear wow. fighters for her. And my kids were, they were really involved in like ninja obstacle stuff, like American uh-huh. Warrior. But so we used to go to this ninja, this homeschool ninja gym. And at the end of every class, they would take Susan and they would bring her over to this bar and make her hang from the bar <laughs> and like get her to do, she used to call them her exercises. She's like, I'm going to do my exercises. And they would like get with her and they would do like all these exercises with her. And it was it was incredibly sweet. And there was one day where one of the kids in their regular ninja class pulled my younger son aside and was like, Hey, see that woman over there? She's really ugly. And Finn was like, you know what? That's not just my cousin. That's my favorite cousin that you're talking about. And that is not okay. And I thought Finn was going to like swing at the kid and he didn't, but the, the, the kid ended up, Oh no, he ended up hitting Finn. I think he ended up hitting my younger son and I don't think my son ended up hitting him back, which was really brilliant and kind of almost, almost <laughs> surprising. But we had to go outside with the other parent and like Finn explained what happened. And he was, he was so upset. He was like crying. He was so mad at this kid for, you know, saying something disparaging about her. And yeah. Yeah. And so it was an extraordinary experience for all of us. Like it changed, like this was the big shift 
was that I was always the mom. I was always the one who was the caretaker. Like I took care of everyone's needs. But when we took Susan in, all of a sudden it could no longer just be about everyone's needs. My needs had to be taken into consideration. Oh, wow. Like family sit down meetings because there was so much going on between appointments and kids activities and, you know, my daughter's school and her job and like getting everybody where they needed to be, including myself. And we had to sit down and be like, okay, what's on deck this week? What's on deck today? Who needs what? And we'd all talk about what we each had to do, what Susie's needs were, what our individual needs were. And all of a sudden it was, I was part of the caretaking circle. Like I was being taken care of too. And like my kid- if I needed them to do chores and this still exists. I mean, I know it hasn't been a long time, but this still I find exists in the house where I no longer have to fight with people to participate in the household. It's like, I need you to do the dishes. I need you to fold the laundry. I need you to do this, this, and this. And then we can do all these other things. And they understand that these things have to get done. Right the house to function. And it's not just my responsibility that we all have a responsibility in keeping this house moving along. And Susan really, she really changed that, the dynamic of what it means to all live together in a family unit for all of us. That's astonishing. Yeah. I wanted to talk about art today specifically because of my guest, because her kids, and for that matter, mine, were deeply embedded in the arts when they homeschooled. Beyond the factory aspect of schools that I talked about earlier, the problem with that is that the arts don't have any place in a factory. And careerism starts very, very early in the United States. Kids are told that they shouldn't get to like any kind of pursuit that doesn't prepare them for a good career. And who defines that good career is very much up to the individual adult. But the arts aren't there to produce artists. In fact, I think this is sort of that piece about stepping away from our own schooling and the schooling choices we made for our kids. No subject of learning is there so that you will make a career in it. There are a couple of real basics that we need to know as human beings, not in 1850, but in the 21st century. We need to know how to read. And despite people assuming that that has to happen by a given age or a child is behind or slow or handicapped in some way, it doesn't really matter when in that period the child learns to read. It really doesn't, as long as you use workarounds for whatever their needs are. But reading is very important. By the way, kids want to learn how to read. If your kid doesn't want to learn how to read, there's something else impeding them in the learning process. They are not in a learning environment that is meeting their needs because kids want to know what things say. They want to decode and they want to understand the messages and culture around them. So kids want to read. Kids want to write. 
They need to communicate. They want to communicate. And it's very interesting these days because I'm old enough to remember so much hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about children learning to read and write, why Johnny can't read, and all this kind of stuff. We read and write far more now than we did 20 years ago. It is absolutely essential for the connectivity of our world. So kids that were looked down upon for not writing, they have to text. They want to text. They do text. Are they texting slang and shorthand and Argo? Sure. Can we clutch our pearls about that? Yes. But while we do that, I will get the receipts from the 1910s and show you all the telegraph Argo and slang and shorthand. The last time we did that kind of a deep text-based communication before the phone. It's very interesting to me the number of people under the age of, say, 30, and I find myself increasingly feeling this way too, who don't want to telephone. They do not want to have their time taken in that particular way. There's a softer aspect of texting people that is less demanding and hilariously far more like, again, 120 years ago when there were, you know, 12, a dozen or more mail deliveries in a day. That's much more like texting. Kids want to learn to write. If you have the right lever, kids want to learn how to do math. Money is often that lever. You can buy this thing, but you need to be able to figure out change. But it's also a lever for any question kids have. How does light work? Waves. How do waves work? Let's look at a graph. How does the graph work? Math. And here is where we get so shockingly short-sighted that it makes me very sad. Because music is math. Everything about music, the pitches, the wavelengths, measuring, measure for measure. A time signature is called a measure because it measures time. It's math. You can do an entire score with the beats and the, and the lengths of the notes correctly annotated with Legos. Right now, I'm using Adobe Audition. I can go in and use the math about the decibels, about the sounds, about the background noises, how to detect them. All of it is math. This is software. Software is based in math. Music is math. So if we don't go to math through music, we have lost a valuable tool. And if we don't allow music at all, we have lost a valuable tool. And that is only when I'm counting that tool as part of factory-style learning. And I don't. Because I think the value of music is far beyond learning math. Learning math is a happy accident of learning music. Learning music allows you to express yourself. It allows you to hear the expressions of other. It tones, singing tones and 
makes your vagus nerve, which runs in this wild path around your body, makes it stronger. It's good for you to sing. It doesn't matter whether you are on pitch, although what a shame to not learn how to do that in all this time in school. What a shame to devalue the learning of doing that. Music is infinitely useful and enriching and necessary. And it does not have to churn out future soloists in the symphony or churn out future careerists of any kind. Art, in terms of visual arts, is absolutely necessary to a future world of innovation and imagination. And we don't spend any time on it. And in fact, I suspect some things have changed, although the more things change. Kids that don't display an early talent for art are often discouraged. It just is that way, as though some of you will now be commercially successful artists and the rest of you shouldn't bother. Figuring out color is a useful and deeply enriching skill. Learning to quiet your mind enough to look outside yourself and replicate what you see in front of you or what you feel in front of you is something desperately needed by children and adults. Learning perspective is math and also enriching. And I would love to see a world where instead of deciding that every person who does anything artistic is a doomed, jobless individual, why on earth do we distill that down to jobs anyway? Why is everything distilled to jobs? I mean, I do know it's obviously it's capitalism, but it's pretty unfettered, ridiculous capitalism because we have adults who don't know how to enjoy themselves and enrich themselves and comfort themselves in a large, large way. I took 10 years of violin and piano. And I have very little ability to find places where I can still do that, but I do do it for myself. And I still sing when I can with others, but I have to really seek it out. It's not really a given that young people at the sort of at the top of elementary school on until adulthood, well into adulthood, will be given some kind of social permission to take the time they need and make something beautiful and make something enriching for themselves and make something that satisfies a deep need. Long before humans were able to read or write or do much in the way of math. We drew and we sang and we played instruments. So we did music and art first. And we know this because there's extensive 
prehistoric art available to us. And there's extensive prehistoric bone flutes and drums and things that indicated that people were making music. It's weird to me that those things would be considered secondary, a deep secondary, a, a, a contemptuous secondary. And then dance. Kids dance and we think it's very cute and then it stops. It really stops. If you've ever been to a high school dance, people are not really dancing much. Fair amount of fair amount of grinding and seeing what everybody can get away with. But movement for the sake of movement, joyful, joyous movement? No. Whereas if you look on YouTube, people really enjoy it. They enjoy watching it. They enjoy learning it. They enjoy doing it. Why is that not part of the school day? Why is that not a constantly year after year done thing of the school day? And then we bemoan that kids are sitting around inert and gaining weight and having health problems. And then the last thing is that this lack of the arts produces teenagers who are depressed and in poor mental shape. And that's our neglect, not theirs. And we can do better. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.